Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Our topic today is one that we have not covered. Believe it or not, in 11 years of being on the air with Go Green Radio, there are still many topics that we have to cover. We have not even even begun to scratch the surface of all the things that we need to know about as an engaged citizenry around environmental protection issues, around resilience, and how to be ready for climate change. And today we're covering a topic that's brand new to us. Uh, it's about rainwater harvesting and how engaging in rainwater harvesting both both at the residential and at a larger scale can make for more resilient communities as climate change begins to progress and things like droughts and on the opposite end of the spectrum floods can impact our communities and the water infrastructure that we have. Today, our guest is Kat Sawyer and she's a rainwater catchment specialist. She has a master's in organic architecture from the San Francisco Institute of Architecture, and she's actually a program manager for the Greening Urban Watersheds Initiative for an organization called the Watershed Project. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Kat. So glad to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Jill. And I would love to have you talk about your your organization a little bit. Before we dive into our discussion about rainwater harvesting, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about the organization for which you work, the Watershed Project. Talk to us about the history and the mission of that organization. Great. Uh, The Watershed Project is a nonprofit that has been around for 20 years, and our mission is to connect people to their watersheds with educational programs and hands-on events that give people an opportunity to participate in activities that improve our waterways. So our projects range from creek and coastline cleanups to urban green infrastructure, and that's where I come in. And your role at the Watershed Project is Greening Urban Watersheds Program Manager. Talk to us about the work that you do in that capacity. I I was looking at your website and looking about, uh, you know, all the things that you had about the program on the website, and it's fascinating. So spend some time talking to us about that work. Okay. Uh, My role at the Watershed Project is to help us implement green infrastructure to manage stormwater in a more natural way, directing it into special landscapes that are designed to infiltrate runoff from the urban environment into the ground instead of going into the sewer system or the San Francisco Bay. Uh, So the Watershed Project engages volunteers to help us plant and care for our rain gardens and bioswales, mostly along the Richmond Greenway, but also in Bay Area public schools. So that's uh, where I spend my time, and uh, it's a great way to, to get people involved in things that can help improve water quality. Love that. I mean, and that has become so important uh, lately. When you talk about water quality, people in different parts of the country think of different things. There's some people who will think about lead in the water. There are other people who mm-hmm. will think about uh, water shortages in all the many states, uh, plain states and western states who have recently gone through a historic period of drought and, and the impact that drought can have on water quality. And so that's a that's a huge and important issue that I think for many years we took for granted and people are are taking it a lot less for granted after all of these events have been going on the last few years. Now, for a lot of our listeners, you know, they live in urban centers. And so they do not see natural bodies of water on a daily basis. And so the idea of a watershed may not be self-evident to them. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time having you explain to us what a watershed is and how our listeners can identify their own watershed. Great question, because it's true. People don't see watersheds when we live in cities, and I live in a city, too. Um, But a watershed is defined by topography and gravity, and it's the area where water drains down from higher elevations into creeks and rivers all the way down into large bodies of water like the San Francisco Bay or the ocean. And in cities, we don't notice them because they're paved over, and all of our water is directed underground into pipes. And so we call this gray infrastructure. And, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very efficient to move water around through pipes, 
But in the built environment, there are a lot of hard surfaces are created, like streets and the roofs of our buildings. And it's unlike the natural environment in a watershed where the rain falls onto trees and earth and flows into streams and rivers all the way down to the sea. So that's um, a, a good way to think about watersheds. It's just from, from the top of a peak down into where it would flow into a, a bigger body of water. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that some of our listeners are very familiar with what stormwater can do to their infrastructure. I work in a variety of communities across the country and on the East Coast, where some of the water infrastructure is the most antiquated. They have combined sewer and stormwater drains. And so when it's very, very rainy, um, those infrastructure pipes can get overwhelmed with material and they can back up. And you see children walking to school in sewer water that's running down the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a, a lot of people, they, they really aren't that familiar with stormwater management in general. So because we have a subject matter expert on the show, I'd like for you to help us <laughs> understand the need for stormwater management and, and how rainwater harvesting can contribute to a sustainable stormwater management strategy. Fantastic. Uh, you know, it's, it's true that um, many cities on the, the edges of, of an ocean, uh, some of them have old, well, all of our cities have, have old infrastructure, and we have to manage it in the ways that we can. But uh, San Francisco as well has a combined sewer system like the one you mentioned, um, and that is when the stormwater is piped along with our wastewater to be treated before uh, it enters another water uh, uh, like the bay or the ocean, and that's really great to be able to clean that water so that the, the pollutants from the streets can be uh, mitigated before that water flows into something else. But whenever we have a, an old system and a lot of rain, it can combine and, and lead to sewer outflows into the, uh, into the ocean, partially treated sewage, and, of course, urban flooding, um, because all this in cities, all the water that hits our roof and it goes into street drains and, and pipes. And, and so whenever we have a lot of rain, it just gets overwhelmed, just like you said. So the good, good thing about rainwater harvesting is it's a form of stormwater detention. It has a benefit for a combined sewer system, especially because it captures rain and holds it back from the sewer in a storm when it might be overwhelmed by too much water at one time. Um, but it, it also has a good function for um, it, it, in areas where it might flow into creeks and streams. It, it, if we hold that rainwater back, even if we don't have a combined sewer system, we can actually help reduce erosion uh, and pollution. So, um, and rainwater, of course, can be stored and used later to irrigate landscapes in a simple system, or we can flush toilets and do laundry with it when it's designed to function in a building. So there's a lot of possibilities for reusing that water, which is an, an added benefit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when stormwater runs across a street or even off of a roof that might be made of composite material and things like that, mm-hmm. it can pick up things besides just a little dirt, right? Um, yes. You know, and so talk to us a little bit how rainwater harvesting can help keep our water a little bit cleaner. Well, yes, it, it's, an, it's an added filtration uh, point because, like you said, it, especially on streets, when you think about the, uh, the things that are in our, our brake pads, like th- that can sometimes have asbestos in it. Um, and, of, of course, all the oil and, and, and metals and things like that that are, that are on the streets from cars. Um, so when you have a rainwater catchment system, you often install uh, what's called a first flush uh, filter, which cleans that water before it goes into the actual cistern. And then um, whenever rainwater is, is infiltrated into the ground to be used for um, the irrigation of landscapes, then the earth does amazing things to, and plants can really clean that, that water. And that's where green infrastructure really comes in handy uh, because when we just utilize the natural world to kind of help us um, and work with it instead of kind of ignoring it, then we really can take the benefit of that. Those plants and soil really clean 
the the products that are that are going into the uh, into the rainwater. So being added by our streets. Absolutely. I want to pivot for just a moment because many of mm-hmm. our listeners are college students or young adults who want a career in sustainability, but they don't necessarily know exactly how to make that happen. So I'd like to just take a moment and have you talk about how your master's degree in organic architecture from the San Francisco Institute of Architecture prepared you for your current work with the Watershed Project. The San Francisco Institute of Architecture uh, was just something that came into my life at a, at a great time when I was very, very curious about green building uh, and, and natural building techniques and environmental design. And it taught me a lot about uh, the specifics of natural building and, and designing with nature. But it also gave me the time and space to pursue my passion for building in harmony with the natural world. And so I became involved with activities that strengthen nature in the city from community gardens to urban agriculture. And it, 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 in, at that time, um, I just really followed my heart and, and got into, uh, deeply into these, uh, into these ideas. And I ended up uh, initiating um, a, 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 to the building of a cob tool shed in a community garden and a lot of volunteers came and helped w- uh, with their hands and feet to, to make that happen. And so it's whenever you have a chance to, to really go deep into a, a subject that you really are interested in, I think that's just, just a special time. And, and that's how I think of the San Francisco Institute of Architecture. That is awesome. It really and prepared me for the next step, yeah. Well, and the, the thing is, there it, it underscores an important point that I like to make to my interns as well, and that is there are so many entry points into a quote-unquote green job. You know, it's mm-hmm. not all about solar panel installation. Um, you can you can be in business. You can be in a vocational career. Um, you can be an engineer. There, there's so many ways to bring sustainability into your workplace and into your life, um, and I, I really – enjoy being able to talk to people like you who have done that through you know a variety of different educational paths we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we have so much more to talk about with kat sawyer and uh, she's a representative from the watershed project you can check out their website um, while you're listening in on this uh, tab in your web browser but don't go away folks we've got much more go green radio right after this News, opinion, passion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you can join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Kat Sawyer, and she is a staff member on the Watershed Project team. She's a program manager for their initiative called Greening Urban Watersheds. She holds a master's in organic architecture, and she's talking to us about rainwater harvesting and how that can actually help create more resilient communities. So, Kat, I'd really like for you to take some time, uh, take your time, and talk to us about some of the best practices that are involved in rainwater capture, particularly in urban areas. And I'd love for you to give us a few examples of specific projects that that illustrate those best practices. Okay. Uh, You know, rainwater harvesting has been around forever and is still around in all parts of the world. And Doing a rainwater catchment in cities is a great opportunity to have demonstration projects and educational opportunities uh, along with the actual physical installation. So I've chosen to focus my efforts uh, to install rainwater catchment systems in schools for the most part because school districts own lots of land. Uh, and, and many of the playgrounds are completely paved over in, in urban areas. They're oceans of asphalt. They get really, really hot, as well as um, that water has nowhere to go. So whenever you have an opportunity to, to, to capture rain in a school, um, then you, you can combine that to, to water the gardens, and, uh, and it, it, it's often combined with depaving parts of the campuses. Um, I've worked with schools to get grants for rainwater catchment systems that we install together with volunteers in the school community. And they really allow for educational programming to be added into a garden program into a school in addition to recycling rainwater just as a a good practice for natural stormwater management. And and I'm curious. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of follow up on something that you said there, you know, you mentioned that you work with school communities to get grants. Give us a ballpark figure or, you know, what are some of the things that schools would need to budget for if they wanted to install a rainwater catchment system? Well, if you try to uh, work with, uh, in a professional, uh, with a, with a big contractor that's coming in to, as a part of maybe a school greening project, that gets pretty expensive. But uh, the grants that, that I've been able to access allow for, you know, modest systems to be put in with volunteers. And it's a really great way to build community at the same time as you're building green infrastructure. So, you could put a system in for five to seven thousand dollars with the help of a grant, and or you could maybe add some depaving and 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 make that a better, uh, more robust project, and then it could end up being a hundred thousand dollars. So, but these are often the grants are often a, a way of making these projects happen uh, whenever. There, there's not necessarily a, 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 the money in a school budget, a school district budget. They can kind of leverage those those opportunities to make the, make it happen. Sure. Now, what are some of the best practices in terms of you know step one do this, step two do that? What are some of the steps that people should think about as they're considering putting in a new system? Well, it's it's important to have, over the years as I've installed rainwater systems in schools, it's really important that they're well integrated into a garden program close to the garden so that they visually can make that connection. That's a, that's something that, that tends to make a, a system more successful and, and to be, uh, to not really go fallow and be forgotten. Um, so uh, if you're looking at a, a maybe a, Oftentimes, there's opportunities in San Francisco in Bay Area schools where they have what they've called temporary bungalows, and often they're not really as temporary as you might think, and they've been there for a while. So, but, but they have metal roofs, 
and they're an independent roof, which is, which is really a benefit because you don't want to send too much rainwater through a, a, a cistern. You want to kind of size it properly according to the, the amount of roof surface that you're, you're able to capture from. So, and oftentimes, like in, in a school, their main buildings are internally plumbed and you don't have those opportunities to capture from a downspout that's just running down the side of a building. So the bungalows offer a really great chance to capture rain and send it over into a garden. Oftentimes they're right next to a garden, and that way you can have the system capture the water, and if, it, if and the overflow can be uh, directed right into a planted area, and then the water can be accessed from that same area and used to irrigate the garden and pull that into programming. And in, in elementary schools, kids are learning about the water cycle, so it really plugs right into the things that they're learning about with, with water. And that's when kids really w- just get, in, it, they get so excited being outside and being able to play and run around and have a more natural space to play in. So it's, it's, there's just benefit all around there. Absolutely. Now, on the flip side of best practices are mistakes. And I'd like for you mm-hmm. to talk about some of the lessons that you've learned mm-hmm. over time that you could share with us to help you know, our listeners avoid some of those missteps in the process of initiating a new program. Well, it's true that um, you, there are, that you, you do have to learn from mistakes sometimes along the way. Um, mm-hmm. And water utilities, sometimes they're resistant to these activities because it's kind of a change for them. Or, for instance, the San Francisco um, public school system. Um, that program got really put into place because parents started to get excited about depaving and installing gardens and capturing rainwater. And, but it, but, the, but the, the actual buildings and grounds facilities department of the school was caught a little bit off guard by whenever these things started to just show up, you know, on mm-hmm. their school campuses. So part of that, uh, my role in that was to help to, to, to play a, a connecting role from the parent groups that were really interested in making something happen and the school districts that were really, it's very important to them to make sure these systems are installed safely. And so you have to, you have to be a part of creating best practices and a, and a sense of trust with a, a, with a municipality or a, a, a school district like to where that they, they, they feel comfortable that you're going to follow rules and, and, and so you don't want to, for instance, put a rainwater tank where there's some utilities that may need to be accessed by uh, school personnel or, or, or you don't want to block a fire lane. Um, you want to make sure that because you're putting in a water system and you're, and you're, you're adding some weight, uh, that's a, water weighs a lot. So you want to make sure that you have an adequate uh, foundation for that tank so that it can m- manage to to not fall over. You, you, you want to create a really safe environment. And we live in a seismic zone. So that's another thing that we have to always keep in mind is that we're creating a, 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 a system that is safe and is, is not going to move around in an earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. so, Good point. And, yeah. and I think it really <laughs> underscores, it underscores the point that, you know, you don't go off kind of half-cocked and try and do this in a, mm-hmm. uh, a siloed fashion. This really does take collaboration and planning. And yes, that slows the process down. But in the end, um, that's how you institutionalize and create sustainable programs when there's partnership with the people who are ultimately responsible for um, the the land and the facilities that you're working with. And so I think that's a great point. You know, we mentioned at the beginning of the first segment that rainwater capture can make a community more resilient. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to articulate why that's true. How does mm-hmm. uh, capturing ra- rainwater actually make a community more resilient? Well, it's, it's simple but and beautiful, and there are many benefits to slowing water down in the urban environment because it allows for percolation that reduces flooding, and it can recharge groundwater. 
Um, it reduces the pressure on old sewer infrastructure like we spoke about earlier so that it's not overwhelmed in heavy rains. It, but it can also create beautiful living spaces within the city when combined with green infrastructure. Landscapes that mimic natural wetlands can be a buffer for cities that are facing sea level rise and intense weather events. So all of these techniques are ways to decentralize water management alongside gray infrastructure and that, and it, that creates more livable cities. When you invite nature into the city, it just, it's, a, it's a more pleasant environment for everyone, and we all benefit. I mean, there's even uh, studies that have shown that if children that are taking tests even look outside and can see a tree or natural, they do better. Uh, in, in neighborhoods uh, with trees and more natural environments, they, the crime is, is not usually as high. So it's just it, these things kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. You know, capturing rainwater has a controversial past, which seems kind of mm-hmm. crazy. But in fact, it hasn't always been legal. <laughs> Talk True. to us about the public policy aspect of rainwater harvesting, especially in the Western states. Yes, and I think you're mainly talking about Colorado, but I think there was four states that did it. But Colorado was the one I think that uh, mm-hmm. got everybody's attention because it was it was about water rights. It was saying that the rainwater that falls on your roof or your land does not belong to you, but to the people who bought the water rights downstream. And you know, ultimately, that's we're only borrowing it, and we give it back when we irrigate landscapes with it, and it goes down and recharges the the aquifers at that point. So really, rainwater harvesting uh, is is a smart thing to do, and, and, and it's actually now been, that rule has been changed in Colorado, and it's now allowed in limited amounts, two 55-gallon barrels per household are allowed, um, and, you, and gray water has a similar story here in California. Um, it, it, it went from being uh, illegal to being encouraged. It, it was, it, 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 so practical re- water reclamation wins out most of the time. I mean, the, the drought in California made the state reconsider gray water, and now simple laundry-to-landscape systems are, are legal in the plumbing code and can be installed without a permit. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Jerry Brown was still our governor, and that was just very recently, that was that was all happening. And, and it seems like such an ancient idea, capturing rainwater, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, on your own yeah. property, that it there is. would be no difficulty. But th- it actually was a big deal. And, and water rights in the Western states especially, yeah. um, I mean, that's about the only thing in the California state capital uh, of Sacramento that can make people change from allegiance to the Republican and Democratic Party to allegiances to North and South because water wars between the North and the South are are pretty legendary in our state. And even in the southeastern parts of the United States, you know, water uh, litigation between downstream and upstream states is the norm. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more to talk about with rainwater capture and Cat Sawyer. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone 
and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in today. We're talking about rainwater harvesting. And, you know, on the one hand, this may seem like a, a fairly minute issue in terms of all the big issues that we discuss on Go Green Radio. But when you're talking about uh, stormwater management with antiquated infrastructure in our cities, when you're talking about um, the increased instances of extreme drought or extreme flood, rainwater harvesting can actually help a community weather, no pun intended, those kinds of situations and can actually play a a very significant role in the proper management of a community's water. And so our guest today is Kat Sawyer. She's been talking us through the various benefits and some of the the lessons learned that she can help us with on, on how to set up successful rainwater catchment programs. I read, Kat, that the on the Watershed Project's website that rainwater harvesting can actually help us save energy. And a, a, I know that a lot of people realize that energy use is a big uh, contribution to a community's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so if we save energy, we actually can uh, use that as a mitigation strategy for climate change. But how does rainwater harvesting help us save energy? Well, it takes a lot of energy to pump water around, and we're always doing that. We are pumping it all over the place. So when we harvest the rain, we save energy at the same time because we're keeping it closer to us, and we're reducing our reliance on the municipal system, and so it keeps the power with the people. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, walk us through the process. Let's say you know our listeners are thinking, you know I like to try and install a system just at my residence. Um, before mm-hmm. I go and try and do this on a, on a large-scale basis, I'd like to try it out in my own yard. So walk us through the process that we need to go through to initiate a new rainwater capture, capture system in our residential space. Yes, yes, yes. That's, it's a great thing to install a rainwater system at home. It's a pretty simple process, and the things you want to really consider uh, the first thing you want to look at are, are, is your roof and your downspouts. So is your roof flat or is it pitched? Where are the downspouts? Are they close to where you want to use the rainwater? Because that's really important because it, it, it helps to reduce the complexity of piping the water over to where you need it. Um, you also need a solid level foundation. So you want pavement or gravel uh, because water weighs 8.6 pounds per gallon, and once you start getting a big tank, you, that really, really adds up. And when you look at sizing your tank, you want to look at how much rainwater you can capture off of your roof. And if it's just one downspout, you can actually take that square footage and you multiply the square footage of your catchment surface by 0.6, because it's 0.6 gallons per uh, one square foot, and then you multiply that by how much uh, rain you get per year. So you can actually capture a lot of rain. When, when we were talking earlier about those bungalows on school campuses, they're about 1,000 square feet. They can capture up to 12,000 gallons per year. And wow. when you're thinking about sizing your tank, I have to say one really important question is, how wide is your gate? Because you don't want to, you know, not be able to push the, the, the tank through the gate. A lot of the time people get really excited. They want to get a big tank and then actually you got to really consider how it's going to get into place. And really size in the, in, in, in the city or really in, in, in a lot of anybody's backyard, you want to think about how much space do you want to give over to a rain tank. So you can daisy chain them together and have 
some small rain barrels or you can get a big cistern. And in San Francisco, no permit is needed on your system if you have, if your, your downspout is already disconnected and your tank is on grade and you're less than 5,000 gallons of, of water, which is a lot of water. And you don't, if you don't have an electrical pump, just a simple manual gravity fed system, you can put it in without a permit. So it wow. is pretty simple. And you know what? I I just learned a, a brand new tool, uh, and and a lot of people probably already know this. But I, my interns and I were trying to we're doing energy benchmarking for our city and school district in Pleasanton, California, and we needed the square footage of all the mm-hmm. irrigated places at the school district. So we you can do that with Google Maps. So if you want to know yeah. how big your roof is, what the square footage of it is, check it out on Google Maps, and you can measure the distance um, of your roof and measure the square footage uh, area pretty easily. So that's a simple way to do that. Now, Kat, how does the process differ for instituting a rainwater capture system in a public space? Mm-hmm. Well, you want to be extra careful in a public space. You, you may have room for a bigger cistern, which could trigger a permit, but you, it may require, like for instance, San Francisco Unified School District requires a permit to install anything on their campus because anything that is installed on school property becomes their responsibility. So you really want to have an emphasis on working uh, with what the, your municipality and seeing if you need a permit, especially in a public space. You want to have an emphasis on safety, stability. Oftentimes, too, you want to put a keyed spigot instead of just a, a, a one that turns so that you can prevent tampering. Um, and so those are some things to consider um, in public spaces. Um, but just in general, you just want to think about what might people do. You want to anticipate uh, things that, you know, that, that could happen and try to make sure that they don't happen mm-hmm. and, and just think about it in, in that sense holistically. Mm-hmm. Now, in the last segment, um, you mentioned a term, green infrastructure, mm-hmm. and some of our listeners may not be familiar with that term. So, it, it, talk to us about what green infrastructure is, and then give us some examples of what green infrastructure might entail uh, besides just rainwater harvesting. Yes, green infrastructure is the new buzzword these days. It's really becoming uh, more uh, people are becoming more aware of it, and it's being used a lot in cities because green infrastructure helps cities become more like sponges. Um, it's a simple thing that you can do to put some curb cuts into your curb that help direct that stormwater that hits the streets into specially designed landscapes that have plants in them that handle lots of water at once, but also long dry periods in between. And so in the land in these uh, green infrastructure areas is graded, and then gravel is used to create some storage area for water. And then special soil mix is put on top of that. that It's kind of sandy, and it helps that water infiltrate. So things that you might hear about that are are green infrastructure techniques are rain gardens, which is just kind of a basin with the gravel and the special soil and the plants or swales. Um, And that's really just kind of like a graded ditch, but you put in gravel and the special soil and plants so that it can hold that water, sink it into the ground. And then bioswales, they're more engineered. Uh, They have a perforated pipe in the bottom underneath the gravel, and it's connected to a drain for overflow. So when the bioswale gets saturated, any excess water can flow into a drain. So those, those are, are things, and, and, and rainwater catchment is a form of detention. So that's an, also an element of green infrastructure. But all those things combined make for a beautiful city. Yeah, they do. And and it's great because, you know, green infrastructure is a part of some um, common uh, uh, ways of getting buildings and and other structures certified, like the LEED certification uh, standards and several other mm-hmm. you know green building standards um, include green infrastructure. So we're beginning to see it. I just don't know that it's percolated to the top of everybody's consciousness, you know, in the everyday, you know, community life. Talk to us about 
some of the benefits of working with schools and local municipalities on green infrastructure projects. And I, and I bring this up because, you know, I, I work with schools and hence a lot of students, you know, from the Go Green Initiative, the nonprofit that I run. Um, and sometimes they want to tackle global issues um, and they miss some tremendous opportunities to work on things they care about, like climate change and, and what have you, at the local level and really have a, a noticeable impact. So talk to us about some of the benefits of working at the local level on green infrastructure projects. It's so true, Jill. People can get overwhelmed with, the, with all of the daunting challenges that we have. And that's what I like about... Uh, Finding your your own role, finding your own place in the your own cog in the wheel. You know, every, there's everybody's got a role to play, and so with for me helping to be a part of of showing green infrastructure, especially in the public realm, uh, it it serves as a an educational purpose and a, a public demonstration because I think it's so important that people see water in an urban environment, and also become aware of solutions that that they can be a part of implementing and be supportive of. Because when you look at everything all together, it almost makes you uh, just have to throw your hands up and, you know, and and become, I don't know, uh, like you you just stop. So mm-hmm. I think if you have a chance to find a place where you can make a contribution, wherever that is, it's, a, it's an important thing to do to try to just keep things moving in the right direction. Because when it comes to human behavior, it's going to take a lot of small changes and a lot of us making small changes can make a huge difference. That's so true, and we can't forget that. And I love the fact that your organization, the Watershed Project, helps bring people together, helps these kinds of projects move forward. Uh, You know, you guys host numerous events throughout the year, and I'd love for you to talk about some of those events and some of the groups of people that you bring together. Great. Well, every year um, in January, we do a, a Martin Luther King Day of Service, and People are invited to come and, and work with us on the, some of the uh, swales and, and the, our living areas where we, can, we need help tending, pulling weeds, putting down mulch. Um, and then every Earth Day at, at, in April, we do a coastal cleanup um, where we invite people to come and clean the, the bay with us, the edge of the bay uh, and then Coastal Cleanup Day happens every year in September. So we also do a big event around that time, which is coming up. Um, and we do the same thing, another coastal cleanup that's focused on trying to keep litter out of the, the bay. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also do special volunteer events year-round to, when we have a big rain garden that we have to plant or bioswale that, that needs a bunch of plants uh, put in or trees planted. Uh, so it. we often work with groups, uh, community groups, uh, uh, you know, um, corporate groups, just any, mm-hmm. any kind of, in schools, that's another huge thing is any of the work that we do in schools, we engage the school community to that's get fantastic. them involved and invested. Mm-hmm. I really love what you guys are doing. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Kat Sawyer. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. 
Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us and tune in for this episode. In case you've just joined us, our guest today is Kat Sawyer, and she works with the Watershed Project, and she does a lot of um, uh, rainwater capture programs for urban areas and is in charge of that program. And we've been talking about the many, many benefits of rainwater harvesting. It's not just so you can water your tomato plants. It actually plays a critical role in helping communities um, have a more sustainable stormwater management um, program. Some of our water infrastructure to deal with stormwater is badly antiquated. And so having community rainwater harvesting throughout a community can really help with some of the moments in time when those systems get overwhelmed. You know, Kat, as the effects of climate change continue to progress, a lot of communities already have or will be establishing climate action plans. What role do you hope that rainwater harvesting will play in communities' climate action plans? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that we need to invite water in because we may not be able to keep it out. Um, so we have to come up with strategies that invite it in, help our cities become more like sponges. There are things that, that well, like horizontal levees that, that help to be a buffer zone, things that kind of mimic uh, the natural ways that, that water can be softened before it hits our cities. Natural stormwater management is resilience by design. That, and there was actually a, a, a recent uh, design challenge in the Bay Area that was called resilient by design, where they looked at the Bay, the San Francisco Bay, and they came up with green infrastructure strategies for every uh, every county around the Bay. And and it was it was it was a, an important thing to start to think about at every level how we can invite water in. Absolutely. You know, it'd be great if everybody had a rainwater, you know, harvesting project in their backyard or at their apartment building. Um, But really, if we're going to be able to do this at a substantive scale, a meaningful scale, Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have to have a lot more than that going on. And what do you think are some of the greatest barriers that we'll need to overcome in order to implement rainwater harvesting at a substantive scale? It's so true. I, you know, we always want to encourage empowerment uh, at the grassroots level, but good laws are what we need. We need to have better water management that is, it can't be accomplished without a municipal buy-in and leadership. So, you know, example here in San Francisco Bay Area is the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission recently passed a law called the Stormwater Management Ordinance. And that requires new developments over 5,000 square feet to keep every drop of rainwater on site and manage it with green infrastructure techniques. That includes rainwater catchment, bioretention planters, rain gardens. So if we don't have good laws and regulations, we, we won't, the, the majority of this can't happen. I mean, it, we can't just make it happen by putting rainwater catchment in our backyards. It has to be bigger. It has, that's why it's so important with things like you mentioned about LEED and all these green building uh, things that are being incorporated into the code is to help these, these buildings to manage water as a matter of course, that, they, that this is just 
kind of how it's done and, and bring everything up to that level. We're smart. Mm-hmm. We're creative. We have to access that. We have to really make sure that we stay innovative. Well, and I think from a public policy standpoint, you know, we, we've learned from other environmental issues that having a policy on the books is one thing. Having mm-hmm. the wherewithal and the, the funding to enforce those laws and those regulations is quite another. I mean, I'll give you a, a for instance. It became the law that schools in California are supposed to separate their recycling from their trash in 2011. It's unenforceable. There is nobody except the State Department of Education who could possibly fine or otherwise penalize a school district for not doing that. And the Department of Education has no such enforcement, you know, personnel or budget for that. And so currently, if a school doesn't follow that law, there's absolutely nothing that happens to them. So even if we have policies in place that require schools or other municipal buildings or commercial buildings um, to equip themselves with stormwater management or rainwater harvesting capture programs, if there is no one to enforce it and no penalty for not doing it, it's just words on paper. So, you know, we have to keep in mind that it's not time to do a victory lap just when somebody passes an ordinance at the city or state level. Um, That's the beginning of the policy implementation. And so I I strongly encourage folks who want to get into the public policy piece of this to follow it all the way through Mm -hmm. to enforcement because that's, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Right. And and it has to be the carrot and the stick. You know, there has to be a penalty, but also incentives. And I think often once people know things, the majority of them want a, a good, healthy city and good, good, clean water and clean air. And, and, and so it, human, you know, the, the best parts of human behavior will, will just kick in if the right circumstances are around them. And, and so we, we just want to design for better behavior everywhere mm-hmm. we can. Absolutely. Now, if our listeners uh, who are, you know, we have listeners all over the world, but if we have listeners who are near the Bay Area of California who want to get involved with the Watershed Project, your organization, what are some ways that they can do that? Well, I would say please go to our website, uh, thewatershedproject.org, or our Facebook page and check out our upcoming events. Like, for instance, Coastal Cleanup Day is Saturday, September 21st. We'd love to have people join us for that. And oftentimes we're just trying to create a consistent presence out in, our, on our, in, in the Richmond Greenway on our projects. So we have something called Second Saturdays where we, we try to schedule some uh, volunteer opportunities for people to just kind of drop in and, and help us with some planting or weeding or mulching. So if you want to get your hands dirty, please come and join us. That's awesome. Now, since the majority of our listeners live outside the Bay Area of California, how can they find out information about their own local watershed and and organizations that work to protect those local watersheds? Well, you know, we are in the digital age and so much information is online. Uh, So I would encourage people to just kind of start, go down the rabbit hole, (laughs) you know, check out the organizations in their area that do the kind of work to, uh, to protect the environment. And oftentimes there's going to be something that's going to concentrate on water within one of those organizations or they can help direct uh, you to the right place. It, it, here in the Bay Area, the Oakland Museum created watershed maps for, for uh, all of the, uh, the watersheds surrounding the Bay, and they're also online. So um, I would say dig deep into the, into the computer for once. Sounds good. Now, in the final moments that we have left in the show, Kat, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? Thanks, Jill. I, you know, I just want to say that humanity tends to be more reactive than proactive. But if we want to survive and thrive in the face of all the environmental challenges that we face, we need a conscious evolution that acts on what we've learned and adapts our behavior to live more harmoniously within the natural environment. And our quality of life literally depends on it. So I think I just want to say let's, let's access our, our, our creative side, our innovative sides. And humanity has so much potential. We just got to keep trying to reach it. 
Agreed. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Kat. You know, for our listeners who want to check out the Watershed Project, uh, Kat mentioned the URL. It's thewatershedproject.org. There's lots to see and lots to learn. But if you don't live in the Bay Area, that's okay, because there are there are even national organizations that work on water issues like Waterkeeper Alliance and, and many others. And Kat's exactly right. You can Google that and learn more about your local watershed and how to protect it. So I want to thank Kat for joining us. I want to thank all of our listeners, too, for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety. Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in. 
at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time. 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety channel conservation starts with us learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to our wild world with host ellie weiss our show centers on africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife ecology and ourselves however we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home and most importantly we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the 